We're in 1 Timothy, and last week we finished chapter 4. So, God willing, and you all aren't too rowdy, we'll finish up 1 Timothy tonight. So let's back up to 1 Timothy 4.11 and get a run on 5. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This, let no one despise you because of your youth, we're going to start chapter 5 with how to talk to older men. The idea that he has a gift and that he is to exercise that gift and is not to be intimidated by the fact that there's going to be lots of folks in the congregation that are older than he is. The other thing that's kind of interesting, if you go down to verse 15, 415, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. So Paul is obviously under no illusions that Timothy is an experienced and seasoned preacher. He knows Timothy is young, He knows Timothy's got a lot of development to do. And so what he's telling him is, as you do the things that you are called to do, people will see your progress and they don't expect the wisdom and insight of a much older man from you, but they expect you to be learning, to be sound in what you do, and to make progress. So... The beginning of chapter 5 is, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The idea here is, you are a young guy, you're a young preacher, so don't go trying to jack up an older man. If you approach an older man and try and rebuke him, you very well may get something to the order of you young whippersnapper as he chases you out with his cane. So what he's counseling here, if you will, is tact. He's telling him to teach, preach correctly, show some progress, but understand that you are young and fairly inexperienced, so approach older people with some humility. That's sort of what the council is there. And younger men as brothers, in other words, you're their peer. And younger women as sisters, in all purity. (laughs) I have no idea whether Timothy is married or not. Just don't know the answer to that. The comment was, uh, you would assume that he is married because of the criterion for elders and deacons, that they should be married. And certainly in Judaism, married clergy is the rule but again i don't know as far as i know a wife is never mentioned for timothy but the other way i see this is older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity one of the things that happens to 
preachers is they get tangled up with the women in the congregation. Boys will be boys and girls will be girls. And one of the things he's saying is obviously you need to pay attention to that and make sure that you don't stumble there. The list of pastors and preachers who have gotten themselves in trouble over women in the congregation is pretty long. So we're now down in chapter 5, verse 3. And here we're going to talk about widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. That takes you, obviously, to Yeshua's conversation with the Pharisees. And I'll read it from Mark chapter 7, verse 9. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Yeshua is rebuking the religious establishment for setting up conditions where they come in the line of inheritance and wealth ahead of parents. Church first, then family, then so forth. And and what Yeshua is saying, no, you got that exactly backwards. So here in Timothy, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. So the idea there is that you want to take care of your parents to the extent that they need it before you come to the church. And one of the things that's going to happen here, of course, is he's going to talk about people coming to the church for support. We're all the way down to verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers day and night. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So what he's doing is contrasting a woman who has done godly things all of her life and one who is going to be an opportunist. Verse 7, command these things as well, so that you may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The idea here is... The church should support widows, as we do, but they should be widows who have no other to help them. So if a widow has a family, the family should be involved in supporting her. Verse 9, let a widow be enrolled, and we're not sure what enrolled means. The implication here is enrolled for support of some kind. And again, in this congregation, we support widows with a weekly share of the offering. So, verse 9 again. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. 
and having a reputation for good works. As she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. In other words, what you're looking for here is women who have led exemplary lives but need help. So verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. As I say, in my particular translation, a young widow who is still sexually active, basically, gets an opportunity and wants to get married. And then he says that will take her away from her calling. Then he says, I would have them get married. So it sounds like a contradiction. The commentary that I've read suggests that if a widow is enrolled for support from the church, she becomes like a nun. She takes a vow and dedicates herself to works in the church. And so if a younger widow takes that vow, dedicates herself to works in the church, and then all of a sudden finds some good-looking guy that wants to marry her, she would have to break her vow. Now, the commentary that I read is speculating, just as I am speculating. So we're not sure what the deal is, but as I say, there's an apparent contradiction here, whereas if she's enrolled and then turns around and gets married, that's bad. If she's not enrolled and gets married, that's good. And so the commentary I read speculated that there might have been some kind of an oath or implied contract or something like that once she had come in and accepted support from the church. And for her then to change her mind and go off and get married would break her vow. That's as good an explanation as I have. Now, the other part of that is you have a young widow who is physically fit and able to work, able at some point to remarry if she wants to. So the implication here is she should support herself and we reserve support of widows for those who are truly needing the support as opposed to someone who could be out working or somebody who could be starting another family or whatever. That's the best I've got for that. The comment was that tells them not to be busybodies and so forth. The implication here is that a younger widow getting married would have a household to take care of, and that's a lot of work. Whereas if she's being supported by the church and has nothing else to do, then she's got time on her hands, and she can go off and meddle and gossip and so forth. If you notice... It says that the younger widows should marry, bear children, manage their household, 
In other words, they should be active and industrious with a new family and not out rattling around, gossiping, and so forth. And one can presume that the older widows are also engaged somehow in service to the community. So we're all the way down now to verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. A couple of things there. Obviously, there is no problem whatsoever with paying a preacher. This congregation, we don't do that, but that was our choice when we set it up. So that's just the way we've decided to do it. But if you go to any other church where you have a full-time pastor, typically they're younger men and they have a family to support and so forth, and paying them is perfectly fine, no problem whatsoever. And then the other thing about that is do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The thing that I am thinking is going on there is church politics. Any group of people will have internal politics, and it is entirely possible for people or factions within the church to gang up on or I don't really like that elder and let's get rid of him kind of thing. So what Paul is saying is somebody with responsibility has a target on his back. So someone who has a target on his back will occasionally collect arrows. And you need to make sure that if there is a charge against an elder, it is well substantiated and not just church politics. If a group of people say, Michael is a real snake, okay, I've just said some Lashon Hurrah, but there's no action that's going to be taken as a result of that. Whereas an accusation against an elder may result in the elder losing his position. So the deal here is, don't listen to it unless you have credible witnesses. So verse 19 again. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand and fear. The French, during the, I think the time of Napoleon, had a thing. Go ahead and shoot one of them to encourage the others. Idea of... If somebody is in flagrant sin, saying so is appropriate. This isn't talking about the pastor. So let me read it as a complete thought then and see if that makes sense. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. That feels like two thoughts to me. The reason I'm not leaping on that bandwagon, although I understand it and I'm not arguing very hard, is so that the rest may stand in fear. So you got all the elders are now standing in fear. Comment was, and all the discussion were, that the idea here in verse 20, those who persist in sin would be elders in this case. Rebuking somebody in front of the congregation may lose you a congregate. I mean, there are lots and lots of people who are soured on religion because they have been in churches that they regard as harsh, whether the church was or not. Verse 21. 
In the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The idea here is human societies form cliques. You have people you like and people you don't like. So there's always a temptation when somebody stumbles, as most of us do occasionally, to land hard on the ones you don't like and sort of blow it off on the ones you do like. So this idea of not showing partiality is obviously important and especially important for the pastor. 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So there's two concepts there. Laying on of hands is by way of passing on ordination. If you're having somebody who is going to be an elder or a deacon or a pastor, the way that happens is you lay hands on them and pray over them. This is Judaism as well as Christianity. Torah 101, if you will, although it's not mentioned in Torah, interestingly enough, but it is the standard in both Judaism and Christianity. So that's thing one. Don't lay hands on a person until you really know him, because people will come in and be very charming and so forth, and you may discover after you get to know them for a while that maybe they're not. And so get to know them and Elsewhere in scripture, it also says, don't lay hands on a new believer. Wait until they have been at it for a while. Wait until they've learned and shown some maturity and so forth before you do that. The idea there being, if you lay hands on him, he has some official authority. And so the temptation for a a new believer is to sort of get himself puffed up and try and appear to know more than he does. And on the case of somebody who is simply charming but superficial, that's also a mistake. But then we have the next part of that sentence. So do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. And the idea there is, as I was saying before, human beings form cliques. And it is very normal for somebody to stumble and his friends to sort of try and cover it up. So there are two thoughts in that sentence. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Don't know what Timothy's problem was, but wine seems to help. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And this goes back to the idea of don't be hasty to lay hands on someone because he may on the surface appear righteous and you may then later discover that he's not. Wait till you know him for a while before you do that. Some men's sins are conspicuous, but some appear hidden and you only find out about them much later. So too good works are conspicuous And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So the idea is both sin and good works will eventually come out. Sometimes it's obvious at the time. Other times it isn't obvious till much later. Chapter 6. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor, 
so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Very much human nature, if both the slave and the master are members of the same church, if you will, there's always the temptation of the slave to, well, he could cut me some slack because we're both brothers. And what Paul is teaching here is if, in fact, you are a slave, and in that economy, you are an economic asset. So one presumes that the reason you have a slave is because you've got stuff to do, and a slave is an economic asset in that case. So a believing slave with a believing master should not then defraud his master of his labor. God's standard and how people apply it are two different things. That shouldn't surprise anybody. So, if you look at Gentile slaves who are purchased from Gentiles, it says you can keep them and pass them on. This is now Johnnyology. At some point, that slave may say, I believe in your God. I will follow your God. I want to be circumcised. At which point he is a Hebrew. At which point, legally, the six-year thing kicks in, and he goes out free. Now, given the fact that they weren't actually doing that for Hebrews either, I don't know that they did it for Gentile slaves. But if you just look at the logic of the law, that's the way it should work. Okay? So here we're talking about Gentiles, both master and slaves. We're not talking about Hebrews, so we're not talking about the Torah provision of release in the seventh year. So anyway, the instruction here is, if you're a slave, you are an economic asset, and you don't want to defraud your master of your labor simply because he is a brother. In other places, Paul says, oh, by the way, if you are the master, you need to treat your believing slaves well. Obviously, you have access to their labor. That's what you got them for. But you should otherwise treat them well. So the idea of the believing master having a duty now to his believing slave is reciprocal. There's still a employer-employee relationship, and we expect to get some work done. Treat each other well. So I'm all the way down to verse 2 and a half. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Yeshua Messiah and the teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Remember in context, when we started this letter, we cross-referenced it to Ephesians, we cross-referenced it to Levin, and we cross-referenced it to the 
letter to the church in Ephesus because we're talking about the Ephesian church here. And one of the things that Yeshua commends the Ephesian church for is being zealous for the right doctrine. And they have examined those who claim to be apostles and are not and found them false. So this idea of keeping the doctrine pure is in all four places. It's in the kingdom parable where you have leaven coming in. It's in the letter to the Ephesians and it's in the letter to the Ephesian church in Revelation. So the big deal here is doctrinal purity. Of course, the downfall of the Ephesian church is you get so strict in following doctrine that you get harsh and you wind up losing your first love, which is human relationship. So this idea of having people coming in who are teaching their own doctrine. Remember earlier on when we were talking about bad doctrine, it appeared that what we may be talking about there was Gnosticism. That was back in chapter 3, I think, where you had people forbidding marriage and certain foods and stuff like that. And at that point, I opined that we might be talking about Gnosticism there. Here you've got people who are apparently coming through, as I say, with a three-day pass and a briefcase, that are teaching for gain. One of the things that we decided fairly early on in this particular church, in the Messianic community, there is a very strong traveling, book-selling, and conference community. You'll have people that will show up to sell their book or their DVDs or their CDs and teach a class and so forth. And we decided early on that we were just going to sort of regard that fairly suspiciously. We've had several come in, and they've been people that both Ray and I vetted, but we haven't been one of the weekend stops on the lecture circuit routinely. And the reason for that is just this, because one of the things that happens if you are on the lecture circuit is you are under a lot of pressure to come up with new stuff all the time. Gee, we have seen so-and-so three times, and he always talks about the same thing. So we don't need to invite him anymore because we've already heard what he's got to say. So the pressure on this guy is, i got to come up with something new every time, so I keep getting invited back and keep getting my speaking fees, keep selling my books and my DVDs. That may be what we're talking about here. People that regard Scripture as a vehicle for gain. And I'm not saying that people on the Messianic election circuit are charlatans in it for gain. That's not my point. My point is the pressure on these people is always to come up with something new. Because everybody, when you get a guest speaker in, they want, they want something new. They don't want to hear the same old stuff that they have always heard. And so there's a tremendous amount of pressure on those folks. And what Paul is saying here is these folks are puffed up. They don't understand anything. And they're in it for gain. 
And furthermore, we're going to have some of them who are going to be teaching things that are wrong. So let me read it again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, which is not agree with the sound words of our Lord Yeshua Messiah and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Great indoor sport in the messianic community is, well, what does this translation actually say? And you get this arguing over words and, and nattering about and Oh, well, wait a minute. You didn't say the name of Yeshua with the proper, you know, you got to say it this way. You can't say it. You know, all of those kinds of things are in this community, which is one of the reasons why I say we decided early on we didn't routinely want to be a weekend stop on the circuit just because of that kind of thing. The motive here is profit. The motive here is not spreading the gospel. This is my living. I get paid for giving lectures, which means I gotta always have a booking. And if I have to come up with something a little bit off the wall to obtain that booking, I will do that. There's a Mark Twainism that I've always liked. Show me where a man gets his corn pone and I'll show you where he gets his opinions. And the obvious meaning there is his opinions will be malleable to make sure that he continues to eat. And I am speculating that that may be some of what's going on here. And one of the things that Paul has told Timothy twice in this letter is watch out for this stuff. And then by the time we get to Yeshua's letter in Revelation, it's saying, yeah, you guys are doing really good. You're watching out for that stuff. You're checking them out and you're chucking out the bad ones. But in that process, you have grown harsh. Verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is all in the context of false teaching. He has just said that someone who is a good teacher is worthy of his hire. So he has no problem with paying a pastor or a good teacher. There's no problem with having a speaker coming in and giving an honorarium. But understand that a transient speaker coming through a congregation doesn't have responsibility for the congregation long term. So he can come in with a hot new thing and drop a bomb and then leave and he doesn't have to clean it up. We've had that happen too. Which is why, as I say, we don't routinely have a lot of speakers in here for that very reason. But there's nothing wrong with paying a speaker as long as he sticks to sound doctrine. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, I love that. 
he's been talking about false teachers and false apostles and so forth and telling Timothy to watch out. And he says, but as for you, O man of God, which is to say, I've taught you, you know better, so I'm now praising you and expecting you to live up to that praise. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Remember, they laid hands on him and they gave him an ordination and he confessed his faith as part of that process. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Messiah Yeshua who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Yeshua Messiah. So the idea in context here is you are the pastor of this church. You are responsible for keeping bad teaching and doctrine out. This is going to be a chore. It's going to be a fight because people are people. And you get somebody that gets a hold of a book and, oh, what about this? Or you get an itinerant guy that comes through. And I mean, we've had people come through the congregation that want to hand out tracts. So this happens. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, you're the one that's responsible for this group of people. You need to defend them. Let's pick it back up at 13, which is the beginning of the sentence. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Messiah Yeshua, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And by the way, Messiah Yeshua dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And remember, he talks back earlier that we take nothing out of here. So in context, then, what he's telling people who have worldly wealth is use it to store up for yourself permanent wealth. And don't get too fond of the wealth that you have here. 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So this is in the context of perhaps talking against Gnosticism, talking against false teachers, talking against people who stir up the flock with things that they claim are knowledge. And 
what Timothy is charged to do is root that stuff out, make sure that it doesn't cause dissent in the congregation, and it's going to be a struggle because people being people are always going to chase after something new and exciting. We all do. With that, we're done with 1 Timothy, and God willing, we'll go on to 2 Timothy next. Amen.